Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Again, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. This week, Russian President Putin's war in Ukraine. It just gets more miserable, more muddy, more intense, more dangerous. Because he is bent on winning as his army is worn down and in danger of losing more ground. He rattles a nuclear saber. The former prime minister of Russia, Mikhail Kasyanov, says he's bluffing and the regime, angering Russians now with the mobilization, is beginning to collapse. And Trump, is he coming back in 2024? A new book on the divider. We talked to New York Times reporter Peter Baker. All right, Mikhail Kasyanov is the former prime minister of Russia. He served under President Putin uh, and since then has been uh, in opposition in Russia and now out of Russia. Mikhail, I know you left Russia several months ago. I would bet that there are thousands of people now that are wishing they had left a long time ago when you did as well, given the announcement by President Putin today. Yes, I think it's absolutely the case. In fact, when I left um, Russia and uh, some uh, other people, just I would say many other people left Russia on the first month because just we were all uh, critics of Mr. Putin and some of us just, I would say, uh, very noticeable critics of Mr. Putin. And you know, just since that time, many people already put in jail and the sentence for, for 10, whatever, seven years in, in jail. Right now, as a result of today's Mr. Putin announcement of mobilization, he called it partial mobilization, but I read it as a, as a, a general mobilization because just uh, just all people, all men uh, who are entitled to, to serve an army should, could, be, could be mobilized immediately. And there is just a, another part of law already in force which uh, prevents men from 18 to 60 years old to leave Russia. That's already cases just confirmed by some examples already people just put in the in Telegram and their channels just that's already the case. And of course, right now, even those people who were, uh, I would say, get a loyal attitude to Mr. Putin or just neutral, right now they are creating uh, they coming to anger and i think that that is uh, in, in general terms i say i would say mr putin made a critical uh, i would say decision which i could say as a beginning of mr putin's end because just right now uh, those people who before uh, uh, just behave neutrally they 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 right now would of course uh, have a negative absolutely negative attitude to, attitude to mr putin and they'll try to escape of being sent to the war and uh we, we shall see how this situation the whole situation will develop it's one thing to support a war sitting on the sofa uh, of your house 
but it's quite another one when you may be called to the military or your sons or your daughters may be called to go and fight in a war you probably don't even understand. Exactly. Then I just I would like to emphasize that uh, before before there was just uh, uh, people who were on a battlefield, just those people, uh, officers uh, who officers just serving as officers, and those people, a regular army, a contractual army who wanted to serve. That was uh, uh, soldiers and sergeants. But right now there is uh, mobilization. It means just all those poor families and lower sector of middle class right now, just those people who supported Putin, right now they put in a position, they obliged to, to support Mr. Putin. And uh, officers, um, uh, senior officers and uh, uh, junior officers right now just called for mobilization. Uh, that is already middle class in the big cities. It means just, just a considerable part of population who before uh, kept a neutral position right now would reconsider the attitude to the war and uh, reconsider their attitude to Mr. Putin himself. Himself. If a professional army couldn't win in Ukraine, what is mobilization going to do? Uh, I, I'm not an expert in, 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 in I would say, tactical uh, things in, in the battlefield and in, in military operations, but it's clear that there is a lack of the lack of of um, uh, human resource on the battlefield, and uh, Mr. Putin needs to have just some kind of advantage in this in this field, and that is that is the, the only the only measure he left in his store. Just mobilization, because he has nothing to do, nothing else. How to how to better just um, uh, offensive operation of Ukrainian army? He has nothing to 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 to, to counter, and that's just the only thing. Just that is manpower. People that becomes the... quantitative, not qualitative. Exactly, that's exactly the case. But Putin has nothing more than that. Right after Putin spoke, the defense minister Shoigu spoke, and he said, uh, we've been killing, we've been killing, we're killing, and that the time has come. We are at war, he said, with the collective West. This is no doubt a war now. Yeah, that's absolutely the war. It was a war in the very beginning, and right now just they themselves, Putin and his um, inner circle, have to reconsider their attitude to that. And now just they 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 even have some kind of rallies inside just to be to be closer and uh, because they understand the responsibility they had just taken. And they're all in one boat. And in fact, there is no way for them to get out. And in fact, um, uh, the, the only thing interesting what um, um, Shoigu said today, just they intend to mobilize 300,000 people. That is exactly to get uh, the decisive advantage on the manpower on the battlefield. Not more than that. They're already lacking on the, on the equipment. They're already getting equipment from North Korea and Iran. Because just they already just have nothing in the store and the production just not so fast because just the operation, the war goes very, very fast and very intensive manner. That was they're facing problems and they have nothing to counter. So right after the announcement, Vesna, which is one of the opposition political parties, uh, announced uh, calling for protests across Russia, calling people to come out into the street and not be caught up in this meat grinder of a war that was started by President Putin, do you think there is a chance that Russians will stand up uh, and refuse to support this war? 
uh, as I said before many times, I'm sure the Russians will stand up, but the issue is when, the question is when, not now. I think as I, as I predicted before, just by December, the situation will change dramatically. And that's what Mr. Putin made a decision today. That's one of these measures which would mature the whole situation to, to, to be changed. And by December, just right now, just mobilization will start. And of course, that will be some kind with the uh, corrupt system of mobilization. Some people will be mobilized, some not. It, corruption will grow up immediately on a, on a level of senior officers and and uh, 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 sectors of this uh, military uh, military uh, system uh, throughout the Russia. Um, uh, I would say mobilization centers, uh, and, and in fact, just people, of course, angry would be angry, angry, growing this. In this case, just the whole situation will mature by December, uh, by December, January, both on the battlefield and internally because of this factor of mobilization and uh, people's anger. Some people say that if President Putin wasn't there, we could get somebody worse. Can you give me some idea on how you measure what's taking place in the Kremlin? Is President Putin a moderating factor in any way compared to some of the ultra-nationalists uh, that may be around him, like, you know, Patrushev and some of these other characters? Or do you think he is leading the charge and th that he uh, is absolutely, ultimately responsible for igniting this war? Yeah, of course, he's personally ultimately responsible, but um, uh, few people in his inner circle too, because just they all just in the permanent consultations. It's not a huge uh, uh, set of people, but few of them, of course, just they they discussing this as every day and uh, discussing just how to how to operate further on, and that's why the 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 whole leadership is responsible for this. I mean, those who uh, involved in decision making process on the military side. How serious do you take Putin's threat of nuclear war? That he says the West is the one that was threatening Russia. I don't know of anybody that's used a, a nuclear threat against Russia, anybody credible. Maybe if, if you do, tell me. But how serious do you take uh, his pledge to use nuclear weapons? And do you think that he would then consider Mother Russia to include these territories that are about to vote to join Russia in these uh, in, in these uh, votes that will take place over the next week. Um, first of all, we, <clears throat> I haven't heard any uh, any statements from Western leaders just in terms of uh, potential application of nuclear weapons. That's absolutely lie from Mr. Putin's side. But till May, as a, as far as I remember, Putin and some other people just trying to 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 blackmail just by uh, a possible application of nuclear weapons. But since May, there was absolutely silence on that. Now, Mr. Putin decided to play just the final the final card on this game, and again trying trying to blackmail with the West. But what I already seen yesterday's reaction of Western leaders, people already realized that is bluffing and they, it's not possible because Mr. Putin knows as soon as he 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 pressed the button, he will immediately be be eliminated himself and his inner circle, and uh, that's why that's why that's one of the simple and important reason Mr. Putin keeps in mind. But right now he trying to raise the stakes. And in fact, um, uh, the referendums of those occupied territories, that is what the, the issue he wanted to demonstrate to the West. 
I'll get them in and they become the Russian territory. And I have just a legal inside Russia, a legal right to apply to use nuclear weapons. The, the question is whether he would use this. I think not. This is bluffing. The, the, last, the last card Mr. Putin has. After that would be absolute collapse of the regime. If if the West will continue the, the intensive supply of um, uh, necessary equipment, uh, I would say just the um, uh, military um, the potential of Ukrainian army would grow grow up and will be equal and uh, 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 right now just we already see this this these problems uh, the putin's army already facing with that's i think just we very soon will see the i would say the the complete change dramatic change of the situation Nikaya, last question can you imagine that the ukrainians may be in a position soon as they advance on the battlefield to start striking Crimea itself, which was annexed in 2014. And can you imagine the Kremlin's response to that? Yeah, for me, Mr. Putin, that's the most sensitive. Of course, Ukrainians will do, will try to liberate the whole territory, all sovereign territory of independent state. Uh, they fight for their territorial integrity and they promise to, to all people. And I think just uh, according to the uh, social sociological polls, just 95% of Ukrainians support such a strategy of the leadership of Ukraine. That's why just it's inevitably that uh, they will start uh, dealing with the Crimea soon. But for Mr. Putin, that's the most sensitive point. And that's one of the reasons he started the war. That's what I'm saying. Just we coming to a very dramatic uh, uh, time, period of time. That's why the Western position right now is crucially important, just to have a make, more make intense support of, of Ukraine, uh, both on military and the financial side, so that they could provide necessary support for their army. You're saying the West shouldn't blink, shouldn't back away? Absolutely not. Should stay strong. Mikhail Kasyanov, the former Prime Minister of Russia, always great to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peter Baker is a reporter at the New York Times. Uh, he is an author. He has just published a new book called The Divider. Congratulations, Peter, on another book. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I know when you and I talked before you started writing this book, as you were just a, you were in research. Yeah. And I said, you know, are you really, after so much has been written about Donald Trump, uh, do you really expect to find much that that is any more enlightening and any more bizarre than we've already heard. And, and I see in the chapters of the book, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting anecdotes there. But is, is there something that jumps out at you that you suddenly digested that maybe you, you hadn't quite understood before writing the book? Yeah, well, first of all, Dan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's great to be with you again. For listeners who don't know, uh, we were Moscow buddies back in the day, two decades ago, I guess now. And uh, one thing that struck us was was uh, that some of the themes you and I and Susan Glasser saw in Moscow 20 years ago, we're now grappling with here. You know, we always thought this can't happen here. Threats to democracy wouldn't work in America. It's too too ingrained in the system. But in fact, uh, one of the things that writing this book, The Divider, really taught us is that there from the early days of Putin's Russia to today, which is, you know, what is the future of this country? Is it going to be continue to be the the you know the, the liberal democracy, small L 
that uh, that we have always thought it as, or are we heading in a different direction? And so you ask what's new, what we found. I mean, on the one hand, it turns out there is more to learn, right? In terms of individual storylines, things that we thought we knew, but we learned a whole lot more about, things that we never heard about that we have in this book that have never been out before. But I think the broader stroke, the big through line of it, the history, the reason to write this book is to try to look at what happened in the broad sense. And January 6th was not an outlier. It was not an aberration. It was the it was the inexorable culmination of a four-year war on institutions in Washington that started on January 20th, 2017, and it goes all the way through the end. And that's what we wanted to try to do with this book. It's the only book that tries to capture all four years of his presidency and make sense of them. You know, we spoke about President Putin at the beginning because we were in that we were in the Kremlin together 20, 21 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, wh- why do you think that that President Trump, who grew up in the greatest democracy on the planet, has this weird attraction to leaders in North Korea or, you know, Putin himself? He's spoken very admirably about. Yeah, he has. He has. He no question he has an affinity for strongmen. Uh, Erdogan, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, and of course, most famously, Vladimir Putin. And I think he admires strength. He was taught by his father from the beginning that you had to be strong and never show any weakness. Don't apologize. Don't retreat. Always counterattack. His father's highest compliment to anybody was you're a killer. And that's what he told Trump, Donald Trump, he should be. You should be a killer. And so in some ways, therefore, it's not surprising that he would admire people that he that is Donald Trump that he saw in that light. Vladimir Putin, of course, would would fit that bill. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a rather striking uh, thing for an American president. In fact, the Helsinki summit, which was so famous back here, where he stands next to Putin and says, I basically believe the leader of Russia over my own intelligence agencies was so startling, not just to reporters who were in the room. But to the head of national intelligence back here in Washington, a guy named Dan Coats, Republican former senator appointed by Donald Trump, who watched what happened in Helsinki and was shocked by it and thought to himself, well, gosh, what does Putin have on him? That's what Coates told other people later. So even yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, there's a lot of us that wonder about that. You know, does that videotape really exist or what? But it, it's remarkable that the, that the Trump appointed head of intelligence thought that the president of the United States could be compromised in some way. Now, we don't have any evidence that he was in a tangible, specific way, but that's how unexplainable this relationship has always been. Okay, so he admires strongmen. Why do Americans admire, not all of them, but why do millions of Americans admire him? I mean, you take a look at this case this week. He's being sued by the attorney general in New York for knowingly, allegedly, knowingly inflating assets millions and millions of dollars of these big buildings to appeal to banks to get more money swindling banks is is the allegation how in the world does this you know some guy out in idaho or or some lady in in montana suddenly identify with donald trump as as their president well it is remarkable right because here's this guy a new york billionaire clearly part of the elite by any real definition you know, owns you know a private plane and 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 jets around the world Yet he has successfully made himself into the voice of the self-perceived oppressed, right? A lot of Americans have a sense of grievance or uh, resentment, and he has tapped into that in a visceral way that no other, I think, president in my lifetime has ever done. So it doesn't matter 
if the political leader is the one that was aggrieved or oppressed, which he's not, no. it, it just matters that he's able to tap into that and do that Absolutely. pretty effectively. He does. And he says, basically, I'm one of you. So when he explains away these various investigations and lawsuits and allegations by saying, hey, they're just coming after me the way they are trying to keep you down. And it's not policy based. There is a, a racial component to it, a cultural component to it, uh, a ideological component to it. But broadly speaking, it's this idea that somebody else is getting ahead at my expense and he is fighting for me. He is giving us he is giving voice to my feelings of, of uh, disaffection. Donald Trump's uh, White House chief of staff, Kelly, is is that's part of that is in your book that um, he bought a book that was written by mental health professionals um, that basically warned that President Trump was psychologically unfit for the job. And then in your book, he tells you that he used it as a guide in dealing with the president. Well, he told other people this, right? John Kelly was the second chief of staff at the White House, and he was so perplexed by this commander in chief he was trying to, to serve that he did buy this book to try to understand the mental pathologies that he was dealing with in the president. And he did tell people this was a helpful guide to him to try to understand Trump, try to figure out how to manage him, to try to work for him. And it, it tells you something. And this is something that he wasn't the only one who felt this way. A lot, number of people who work for Trump told us after he left office, all this research, by the way, in this book has been done after he left office. Nothing was held back while he was in office, which I know some people wonder about. But a lot of people after he left office told us that they too were concerned at the time. Cabinet officers would even debate each other. Is he crazy, crazy or just crazy like a fox? And so this is a common concern inside the halls of this uh, presidency. And John Kelly also, he complained to Kelly, why, why are my generals not like German generals? Exactly. And Kelly, a four-star retired Marine general, was stunned by this. He said, what generals do you mean? The German generals in World War II, he says. Well, those are the Nazi generals for Hitler. They tried to kill Hitler three times, you know. And Trump's like, no, 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 no. And his view of the German generals, as he calls them, is that they were phenomenally loyal and that's what he wanted. And that's really anathema of the American system of an apolitical military that, and this bothered not just General Kelly so much, but General Joe Dunford, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, his successor, Mark Milley, any number of generals. One general, Paul Silva, even told him when Trump was pushing to have this military parade down the streets of Washington, that's not what we do. That's what dictators do, the general told Trump, which didn't convince him otherwise. And by the way, they're talking about, the Republican Party is talking about if they come back to power about grilling and going after Mark Milley, correct? That's exactly right. Milley to them has become a symbol of the opposition, the resistance. Yeah. And, and Milley was appointed by Trump, but he found Trump so disturbing that at one point he writes him a letter of resignation, doesn't submit it, but writes a letter of resignation that we get hold of, first time ever published in this book. And he says remarkable things. I think you're doing grave damage, grave harm to this republic, he writes. He says, you're ruining the international order, he says. He says, you don't understand or agree with the values that America fought for in World War II. It's an astonishing letter. I've never seen anything like it written to an American president before. He didn't send it. Instead, he decided to stay in his job and, quote, fight from the inside, as he put it to his staff, not to disobey legal orders, but to try to maintain the integrity of the U.S. military and keep it from being used as a political pawn. We're not, we're not going to get a second round like that, right? There isn't going to be other people in the White House next time, if there is a next time, that are going to be in the position to moderate President Trump. 
this is why this book is important. It's not just a work of history, but actually in some ways, uh, you know, a live action uh, account that will tell us what the next term might be like. And one of the things that we were told by a, a senior national security official, which was really interesting, is that Trump learns, he learns to adapt, not he learns in an informational sense, not in a, he's not a policy maven by any stretch. He still doesn't really understand healthcare as he wants admitted, but he learns how to make things happen the way he wants to. So this national security advisor was in the Oval Office almost every day for quite a while, compared him to the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. And you remember in Jurassic Park, the Velociraptor, this very scary scene, the kids are hiding in the uh, industrial kitchen behind the closed door, and the Velociraptor has learned how to open the kitchen door handle, something a dinosaur you would think would not be able to do. And this National Security Advisor likened Trump to the Velociraptor. He's learning how to use uh, the apparatus of government. In a second term, he wouldn't have a John Kelly. He would have more people like Mark Meadows, who are more willing to go along with him, who agreed with him, who were more deferential. That's a hell of an analogy. Tell me what Lindsey Graham called Trump when you were talking to him. Yeah. And Lindsey Graham, of course, ran against Trump for the nomination in 2016, then turned around and became like his best buddy, at least in the Senate and chief ally in so many ways. But he told us at one point, he says, yeah, he's a lying mother effer. But then he added the podcast. That, you're allowed to do it. Yeah. OK, well, <laughs> anyway, pardon, we get it. We get it. Pardon my French, but he says he's a lying motherfucker. But then he added he's a lot of fun to hang out with. And Graham, like others, seemed to be taken in by this notion of access, that he was there with the the, the king, if you will. And he said that people so, were so taken with him in the Republican this is Party. I don't know 50 people on our side, he said. We're smart people, I think. We've been journalists for a while. This is what I don't get, is that you and I will sit here and furrow our, our eyebrows a little bit and talk about or as Susan Glasser said on, on uh, CNN, sitting next to you in your interview there, she said, you know, it's a five alarm fire on democracy, right? Yeah. But Lindsey Graham's of the world and members of the Republican Party, what, they, they think that it's it's not so serious and that it's just torqued up by the left wing media or they, they don't they don't see this dire threat to the system. No, they don't. They don't. They think this is, you say, this is all the Democrats and their friends in the mainstream media, all just sort of like being political. Um, now, having said that, a lot of Republicans do share the same concerns about Trump, even if they're not willing to say it. They have been cowed in silence, if you will, but there's an awful lot of Republican office holders anyway, who believe that Trump is dangerous, hope that he won't get the nomination, hope that he does go away and they can kind of reconstitute their party, but they're not willing to so and why aren't they willing to say so? Because those who do have gotten punished successfully. Trump controls the party, and so people like uh, Liz Cheney, who loses her primary election, and and the nine others who voted to impeach him in the House in 2020, 2021, uh, all of them practically are going to be gone in the next Congress. Is he going to run again? Are we going to have potentially another President Trump term if if anybody's able to survive that? Well, it's very possible he runs again. I mean, a lot of this is depends on the investigations and so forth. He may view that as a motive to run again, either because he thinks it's going to provide protection for him uh, or because he thinks he can rally the base as a as a victim of this persecution. Uh, so that may encourage him. We will know more after the midterm, though. It depends in part on how well the Republicans do. If they do really well in the midterms, which historically they should, 
Trump may view that as a validation and a reason to run. If they don't, if some of the candidates he basically handpicked go down and they cost them their chance to take over the Senate, for instance, there may be something of a blowback in the Republican Party who begin to think maybe he's not worth the effort. And do you think America can, the system can survive another term of, of a President Trump if he is able to get there? Well, it'll be a challenge the system and, and, and he will reinvent the system in a different way. And Americans will have to decide if that's what they're willing to live with, because it's not it's, it won't be what we recognize. It'll be a different system. All right. Peter Baker. Great to talk to you, Peter. Thank you so much. The book is called The Divider by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Really appreciate it. And that's our backstory this week. Thanks to Peter Baker and Mikhail Kessianov. The referendum now in Russian-occupied areas is underway to determine the future of those regions. Kind of. The votes to join Russia will be successful because they are Kremlin-run, and they're a sham. And the international community will reject the results. President Putin, where are you leading your country? Thanks for listening to Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.